You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, so uh, Mark 15 is where we are. Mark 15. And let me just give a quick preface to the passage and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in. Uh, when, I, uh, when I think about this passage that we're in in Mark 10, I cannot help but bring to it a couple of chapters of a book by a guy named C.J. Mahaney that I read years ago. It's a book called Humility. And in that book, he has two chapters where he deals with this particular story that we're in today that made just a deep enough impact on me that when I get to a passage like this, it just helps shape a lot of, of what I'm seeing in this passage. And so I want to just commend that book to you. We had it on the resource table until the first service and they bought them all. And so uh, hopefully next week we'll have a few more uh, for you, but it's called Humility by C.J. Mahaney. And it would be such a wonderful book as a follow-up to this passage and what we're going to be talking about today. So uh, Mark 10, let me just give you the context of where we are in the book of Mark, just to kind of get your bearings on that. If you'll remember at the end of chapter eight, there's this huge moment where Jesus is looking at his disciples and he says, who do the crowd say that I am? They give him the response, and then he looks at his disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? And this climatic point of the first eight chapters, remember the first eight chapters are all about who is Jesus? And the climatic point of those eight chapters is this moment where Peter looks back, kind of representing the disciples, and he looks back at Jesus and says, this is who we think you are. We think you are the Christ. That's who we think you are, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. So that's the first eight chapters. It's all led up to that point. Now, the second half of the book of Mark, the second eight chapters deal with what Jesus has come to do. So first eight, who is Jesus? Second eight, what has he come to do? And so that's what the second half of the book is about. And this is why in chapter 11, he is about to get to Jerusalem and he's about to show us what he is, what, you know, what he has come to do to die as our substitute for our sin. But before you get to chapter 11, there's these two chapters, chapters nine and chapter 10, where Jesus essentially pulls back from the crowd for the express purpose of investing into his disciples, knowing that he is about to, to leave his disciples. He's got all of these little lessons that he's trying to teach his disciples in these two chapters. So it's lessons like what it means to live by faith, what, what it means to live dependent upon Jesus. Uh, lessons like what does it mean to live life in the kingdom of God? And now you get to this, this particular passage that we're in this morning, and Jesus is teaching his disciples here how to be great in the kingdom of God. What it looks like for you to be great in the kingdom. This is, what he's, this is what he's showing them. So let me just go ahead and break the passage down into three kind of sections here. And then we'll start working through it. Essentially, Jesus is going to show them three things. He's going to show them, kind of expose in them their desire for greatness. And then he's going to redirect that desire. He's going to show them if they want to be great, how do, you, how do you do that? Where is greatness found in the kingdom of God? And then he's going to finish in verse 45 by showing us, like, what is the energy and the motivation and, and what makes it possible to live in this sort of a, of a way? So that's the three sections. So we'll start with the first one. Number one, the desire for greatness exposed. The desire for greatness exposed. So here we go. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 32. It says this. And they were on the road going to Jerusalem. And you might just underline that phrase, going to Jerusalem, because it's going to explain a few things here. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. 
And those who followed were afraid. Now, why would they be afraid? They're they're afraid because they're going to Jerusalem. And in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the religious leaders of the day were plotting the destruction of Jesus. And those religious leaders lived in Jerusalem. So this was not a friendly place to go. If you're in the pro-Jesus crowd, this is not exactly the place you want to be. So let's keep reading here. So they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. So he's he's about to tell them what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Look at verse 33. And he said this, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit him, uh, spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. So this is the third time in the book of Mark. So it happens once in chapter eight, once in chapter nine, and now in chapter 10. For the third time, Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's saying this, we are going to Jerusalem and bad things are going to happen there. This is not going to go well for me. I'm going to be falsely accused. I'm going to be beaten senseless and I'm going to be killed in Jerusalem. So it is this moment where Jesus is bearing his soul to his disciples I mean, he is letting them see that like the depths of his heart here in this moment. Now, contrast that with what's about to happen in verse 35. If if this wasn't so sad, it would be comical. Okay, so watch verse 35 now. So he has just borne his soul to the disciples. Just expose the deepest parts of him on what's about to happen to him. And then watch what happens with James and John. Verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher... We want you to do for us whatever we ask you. Let's talk about a tip for life just real quick. If you're ever in a conversation and it starts out like that, before I even ask you what, let's just go ahead and agree that you're going to do it. Just say no, right? I mean, just just say no. That's not going to work out well. So let's go on here. Verse 36. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Verse 39. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the, cu- and the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Verse 41. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Okay, so let me just point out a couple of things here. First of all, I mean, you just kind of read that. And my first like thought is that is unbelievable that that keeps happening. I mean, what is wrong with these guys, right? And so, I mean, just take the moment. Jesus has just borne his soul to them. He's looked at his friends, his disciples, and said, we're going to Jerusalem. Like, that's where we're going right now. And when we get there, I am about to die. They're about to beat me up. They're about to spit on me, mock me. They're going to do all of that. And eventually, they are going to kill me. It's this expose all moment. And in the next breath, James and John come up and say, hey, we've been thinking about this. Will you just go ahead and say yes before I even ask you? Okay, now that we've agreed upon that, let me go ahead and ask the question. When all this stuff goes down, you get your kingdom set up, all this stuff is going well. Can we just go ahead and settle this? That I'm going to be on your right and he's going to be on your left. Are we good there? 
We're all good. Okay, great. I'm glad you agree. I mean, it's just, it's almost like, are you serious? Did you just miss what he just said? I can tell is this happening right now. It's unbelievable in that sense. But here's, here's what's maybe even more unbelievable is this keeps happening. This isn't like a one-time conversation. This, this continually happens. This over and over, you know, it happens again. And this isn't just a John and James thing. This is the whole crew of disciples thing. So go back one chapter to chapter nine. And let me just point out one other episode where the exact same thing happens. It's so wild. Look, okay, look at Mark chapter nine, verse 30. In verse 30, 31, and 32, Jesus is telling them for the second time in chapter 9, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm about to be killed. This is going to go really badly when we get there. And, uh, and then right after that, so that's 31, 32, and 33, of, of, or 30, 30, 31, and 32 of chapter 9. Then you get to verse 33, and look what he says. Look what happens. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked the disciples, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? And Jesus wasn't asking because he needed to know. He's asking because he's trying to help show them something. And then look at what they say in verse 34 of Mark 9. They kept silent. Why? For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. It happens in chapter 9 and it happens in chapter 10. I think that's enough to say they were really concerned about who was the greatest. They were really concerned about who was going to have the right hand and the left hand. Who was going to be at the top of the ladder. This was at the top of the priority list for the disciples. It's as if they all wanted a chance to say, Jesus, let's settle this right now. When it comes to the plate of, you know, the place of honor and the seat of honor, I'm in that place, right? All of these other guys, they're good, but they're not that good. I mean, and it, you know, you get to verse 41 and I think it's really telling in, in chapter 10, verse 41, you know, the rumor mill gets back around to the other 10 disciples. And it says in verse 41 in chapter 10 that the other 10 disciples, they were indignant at James and John. And in other words, it's using a big word. Indignant is is a word full of a lot of emotion. It's a big word to describe big emotion that the other 10 disciples had once they found out James and John had asked for the right and left hand. And so the question is, why are they so indignant? Why are they so upset in that moment? I think this is the answer. Because they all wanted the seat of honor. They wanted it too. They're all into the same thing here. They all had this deep desire for greatness. And here's what it equates into for the disciples. They are willing to step over one another's dead bodies to get it. But Jesus is showing us here that there is this deep desire for greatness in these men. He's using like, vivid colors. This is a, a picture here, a metaphor, vivid colors showing the deep desire for greatness that the disciples have. Now, I've said this over and over as we've looked at the disciples, that they are both, like every one of these little episodes, it's both a window and a mirror. It's a window for us to be able to look inside the hearts of the disciples, but it's also a mirror for us to hold up in front of our own lives so that we can see that that same thing exists in us, that deep desire for greatness, that deep desire for glory and applause and admiration and recognition that lives in you and I too. Uh, It's been probably, I guess, five years ago now. I was just wrapping up eight years of student ministry. So that's what I did kind of previous to Stonegate. And uh, 
in that last summer that I was doing that, we took a crew of students on a mission trip to Los Angeles. And so um, we were actually, we stayed on top of a building in downtown LA that, um, you know, and it was just beautiful. We'd go to night, you know, go to sleep each night and the skyline of LA was like in front of us. Really interesting, great thing. You know, it was in the summer, so it was like 300 degrees here and like 75 all day, every day there. So it, it was really wonderful. And so here would be our, kind of our normal day as we uh, would kind of operate on this mission trip. We would get up and we would feed, uh, you know, four or 500 people breakfast. And, and most of the time we would do lunch as well. And then in the afternoon, we would go to this park where a lot of the guys in that area, homeless men and women in the area would congregate. And we'd go into that park and we would just hang out. We'd play dominoes. We'd play cards. Um, we had a crew of guys that would play basketball each day, um, you know, with the, the guys that were hanging out there. And so, and you can tell by my physical stature that I was probably dunking on everybody, right? And so it's going well for me. And so we're, uh, we're doing all that. And, uh, you know, in the middle of all of this, there were some of the, the most beautiful moments and some of the most tragic, you know, things that you're just witnessing and seeing. Um, on the tragic side, I remember sitting down by this guy who was very articulate. You could tell he was very smart. And, uh, you know, in a, in a previous life for him, he uh, had a family. Um, still, you know, loves his family, all of that, had a, a good job and just his life had been ripped to shreds by an addiction. And now I just can't even describe sitting there, listening to him, tell the story and, and looking at where he was, just the empathy and just the hurt I had from him. It was just heartbreaking. And then on the other side, we just had some beautiful moments in the midst of, of ministering in that sort of a way. And one you know, particular thing that st- stands out to me as I think about that is at the end of, of kind of that basketball, we'd finish up, um, on one particular day, we got this whole little buzzer beater thing happening where, um, where we would start chanting. We had all these students and we'd start chanting like this little countdown, three, two, one. And normally one of our students would like grab a ball and shoot it from half court or whatever. And you know, it's the buzzer beater moment. It's your chance to be Michael Jordan, LeBron James in, in that little, you know, it's that thing going on. And so what we're having these buzzer beater things and it's like loud enough where everybody in the park is watching this thing. And so for the last one on that day, um, we start the countdown and we throw the ball to this guy that literally he looked dead on the side of the court. I mean, he is like, I mean, I looked at him and think, man, the life has just beaten the joy out of this man. The eyes just glazed over, just really sad. We throw a ball to him. And as soon as that ball hits his hand, he pops up. I mean, the buzzer beater moment is happening right now, you know? So it's three, two, one, he's got the ball and I am sure he is drunk just by watching him dribble. So, I mean, he's swaying this way and he's swaying that way. And we're like out on like the three point line. This isn't a layup sort of a thing here. This is like three pointer to half court area of the court, you know? So he's swaying this way, it's three, two, he's swaying that way. And it's one, he's got, you know, it's time to shoot the ball. And he throws up this awkward looking shot. Um, from kind of three-point land on the court, and it goes in. I could not believe it. He made it. And I can't even describe, I've got this little image burned in my brain of like, you know, his back is to me, he shoots, and when he makes it, everyone goes crazy for him. Everyone in the park is going crazy. And he does this thing where, you know, he's kind of got the jet runway thing going, He's, he's prancing around. He's giving high fives. But when he turned and I could see his face, his eyes were like that big. I mean, the, the life that was not in him just three minutes ago was now just inserted into him. Just this incredibly fun moment. And just watching that, it's so evident that that thing right there is in all of us. 
that want for admiration, that want for applause, that wants for glory and greatness, it brings all of us to life. That's what it does for all of us. That thing right there is in us. It's in you. It's in me. It's in the disciples. It's in all of us, that desire for greatness. And this is what Jesus is exposing, that that desire is in us. You, me, he's showing us that here. Now, here's the question I want you to consider. By the time you get to verse 41, at the end of verse 41 in Mark 10, everything is a mess, isn't it? You've got 12 disciples. You're about to kind of take over this mission thing, empowered by the spirit. They're they're about to start doing this thing. And they are an absolute train wreck. I mean, they're fighting about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be at the top of the ladder, who's going to get the right, you know, the the place on the the right side of Jesus, who's going to get the place at the left, who's going to be the greatest among them. This is the kind of the, the thing that they're arguing about. Now, just ask yourself the question, if you didn't know how the rest of this passage went, how do you think Jesus is about to respond to them? Because if I didn't know the rest of the passage, here's what I'm thinking. Jesus is about to get them in an octagon put boxing gloves on all of them. He's going to put them in there. He's going to start drop kicking them all, uppercuts. That's what's about to come out with Jesus here. But that's not what we see in this passage. That's not how he responds to them. Rather than doing that, he gathers them around for this teaching moment. And rather than just squashing that desire for greatness, he takes that desire for greatness and redirects it. Okay, so watch how this plays out starting in verse 42. He takes this desire for greatness and begins to redirect this desire. Verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, here's what they do. They lord it over them. They lord it over the Gentiles. And their great ones, their their rulers, their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Now, I want you to notice this next phrase. But whoever would be great among you. Well, let's just stop right there for a second. But whoever would be great among you. And I want you to notice here that Jesus does not renounce their desire for greatness. Now that's interesting, isn't it? He does not come along and say, hey, you know that desire to be great? Stop doing that. That's a no-go. Quit it. He doesn't say that. He does not renounce their desire to be great. And and here's why. Because this is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Like a deep desire for greatness is in all of us because we are all made in the image of God. That deep desire for glory and honor and recognition and applause and admiration. It lives in all of us because God put it there. It was put there by God for God. See, in Genesis 1 and 2, our first parents had the exact same thing. They're creating the image of God too, Adam and Eve. And here's what they were designed to do. That desire for greatness was put in them, and it was meant to be turned up vertically toward God. And they were meant to be people, and we were meant to be people who receive our greatness from God. Who have that that desire for greatness, that, that we have it satisfied in God. But here's what happens in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, sin is introduced into the world, and it affects everything. There is not a single part of this planet that is unaffected by the sin of Genesis 3. It affects it all, and it affects our desire for greatness. So now, post-Genesis 3, rather than looking up vertically to receive our greatness from God, that desire gets bent horizontally. 
So now we're looking for greatness in, in, in like terms of other people. It's been out horizontally and we're trying to get our greatness uh, this way. Like from that person, from that person. We're no longer receiving it from God. We're demanding it from the people around us. And that's what happened to the disciples. And the truth is that's what's happening to a lot of us. But I want you to notice that he does not renounce the desire. He redirects the desire for greatness. And this is what we get here. Look at verse 43 again. I want to show you how he redirects it. The problem is not that they're looking for greatness. The problem is where they're looking for greatness. That's the issue. And he's showing them that you're looking for greatness in the wrong place. Let me show you what it means to be great. Here it is. Verse 43. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you. In other words, Jesus is saying, you want to be great? I want you to be great. Now, let me show you how to be great. You must. You might just circle that word must. You must. Here's what he's saying in that word must. There's not like another way on this. There's not a workaround. There's not like a, you can go your way. I'll go this way and we'll all get it in the end. There's one way for greatness, he is saying. Only one. You must do this. You must be a servant. If you want to be great, this is how you become great. You must be a servant. Verse 44, he takes it a step further. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. If you want to be great, this is how you become great. You're not going to be great by asking for a seat at the right and left hand. You're going to be great by doing this. By being a servant of all. That's how you're going to be great. What's a servant? A servant is a person who has given up the rights to their life. They no longer claim the rights to their life. But by being a slave, that is strong language. If you're in first century culture, you hear that word, you are thinking bad things. That's, That's a really strong imagery. And he's saying, if you want to be great, this is how you do it. You've got to be a slave. A slave lives to give. A slave lives to please another person, to work for the good of another person. He's saying, if you want to be great, this is how you do it. This is the only way to do it. And do you see those last two words in verse 44? Of all. Now that's where it gets really hard, isn't it? He's not saying, no, no, you can serve the people who are easy to serve. Serve the people who it pays to serve. Serve the people who, who uh, you know, kind of love you and show you respect in return. Now, it's not that. He is saying you've got to be a slave of all, especially those people that it is costly to serve and very inconvenient to serve. The way to greatness is serving all of them. Maybe you can think of it this way. He is saying that there is one path to greatness, only one. I mean, if you want to be like great, not just for the next like, you know, 20 or 30 years of your life, whatever, this temporary like greatness here. But if you want to be great for all eternity, there is one way. The path of greatness always runs through the valley of the cross. The path of greatness always runs through the valley of the cross. Servant of all, slave of all. It always takes you there. Now, let's let's chat about this for a second because the truth is, There are many competing opinions about what greatness is. A lot of people have a lot of different takes on, like, what does it mean to be great? And and let me just show you this in verse 42. In verse 42, you're going to see a picture of what the world calls great. In In verse 42, and Jesus called them and said to them, 
you know that those who are considered rulers are great among the Gentiles. Here's what they do. They lord it over them. That's, that's what it means to be great. You lord it over. And their great ones exercise authority over them. See, what it means to be great in terms of the world is that you have people under you. Is that you're at the top of the heap. You are at the top of the ladder. Everyone else is below you. That's what greatness is in terms of the world. That that you've worked your way up and you're up here. Everyone else is down here. Now, let me just take a second to ask you to think about this. Think about the last 10 times you have used the word great. And ask yourself the question. The way you use the word great, is it reflective of how the world sees the word greatness or how, the, how Jesus sees the word greatness. I mean, just think about the last way, you know, the last few times you've used great. Like what you use to describe something that's great. And is it, is it reflective that you've been like enculturated, right? That we've just kind of taken on how the world would see that word. Or is it reflective that, that we've actually got a biblical lens that we're using as we, you, you know, as we say and as we speak that word. So think about the last 10 times you've used the word great. I mean, if it's football season... And we're watching the Cowboys, we might say, that's a great quarterback. I mean, hold on, we would not say, maybe another team would say that, right? So, so maybe if we're in basketball season, we would say, man, that, that, that person is a, he's great. I mean, just think about the ways that you use it. And is it reflective of the world's view of that word or the Bible's view of that word? So let me just give it to you in straight terms. Maybe the difference between how the world would see greatness and how the Bible sees greatness. It's to be on the screen for you. Here's the world's definition of the word great. The world's definition goes like this. To make all or to make servants of all for your glory. This is the world's definition of greatness. To make servants of all for your glory. So you get to the top of the ladder and you make sure everyone else is below you. So just think about the common ways we use the word great. If we say you are great at school, what we mean is you're at the top of the ladder. You make more A's than anyone else and everyone else is below you. If we say you are great at football, we mean that you are up here. You're at the top of the ladder of like how good football players can be. Everyone else is below you. If we say you're great at business, what we mean is your bottom line looks better than everyone else's. You're up here. Everyone else is your servant down there. You are there. They're here. So you're great. If we're going to use it in terms of church, this is how often it's used in church or most often used in church. You are big. You've got good programs. You're, you know, your church has fame. It's all of that. And that's how we think of the word great. You're there. Everyone down, you know, else is is here. This is how we use the word great. It's how you use it. And I use it, but that is not the way the Bible uses the word great. The world's definition is you make servants of all for your glory. Here is God's definition. Jesus's definition of, of great. His definition of great goes like this, to be a servant of all for God's glory. Now, those two things are massively different. See, like the the world's definition is you get to the top of the ladder. God's definition is, why don't you be okay with being at the bottom of the ladder? Like, why why don't you be okay with not making everyone your servants? Like, why don't you be okay with not being at the top of the heap? Not, Not being at the top of the pile? Well, why don't you be okay with, with actually being at the back of the line, not the front of the line? See, this is Jesus's definition of great people who will willingly do that. 
I've used this story a couple of times. You know, I've been in uh, the world of like vocational ministry for a little over uh, 12 years. And about two years into ministry, I had one of the biggest like shaping moments of my ministry life. And it came about because the staff that I was working on at the time, we were doing um, some leadership development sort of things. And, uh, and we were talking about how as a, as a leader and as a pastor, that it's, it's really good to think about leadership in terms of knowing where it is that you're strong and where you're weak and leaning into your strengths. So that's a good thing to do. And generally I would agree with that. You know, if I use it in a different, you know, maybe a different context, if you think of a professional, uh, you know, baseball player, that's a pitcher, he is getting paid to get a curveball over the plate, right? So if he's got an extra 15 minutes, it probably makes more sense for him to lean into, I can throw a ball really good. I should probably work on that as opposed to getting into the batting cage, right? And so just the idea of leaning into your strengths was kind of the the thing that we were working on or or thinking through. And so kind of the exercise at the end of that was they uh, gave us this really long survey that we had to fill out. And then the survey would spit out your five biggest strengths. And it had like a list of maybe like 40 different things. And so mine spit out my five strengths. And this was the strength that was at the top of the list. My top top of the list strength was, it's a hard pill to swallow, competition. Competition. This was the number one strength. And then we get all of our staff together and we read through a description of what that strength is and means. So I want to, I want to take a second to read what was read in that room describing the strength of competition. Here it goes. Competition is rooted in comparison. When you look, when you, uh, when you look at the world, you are instinctively aware of other people's performance. Their performance is the ultimate yardstick. Listen to this phrase. No matter how hard you tried, no matter how worthy your intentions, if you reached your goal but did not outperform your peers, the achievement feels hollow. Like all competitors, you need other people. I tell you, this is really bad. You, listen, it goes on. You need to compare. If you can compare, you can compete. And if you can compete, you can win. And when you win, there is no feeling like it. You like measurements because it facilitates comparisons. You like other competitors because they invigorate you. You like contests because they must produce a winner. You really like contests where you know you have the inside track to be the winner. Yes and amen to that, right? Although you're gracious to your fellow competitors and even stoic in defeat, you don't compete for the fun of competing. You compete to win. Over time, you will come to avoid contests where winning seems unlikely. Now, isn't that interesting? I mean, if I were going to describe what just was read there, I'm I'm going to describe it like this in the context of what we're talking about now. You live to make other people your servants. That's what you do. And you're not okay until everyone else is below you. That, that you're okay then. It doesn't matter if you win or lose. You can win the race, but the race really doesn't matter. What really matters is you put everyone else behind you. That's what really matters to you. 
Okay, now I, I want you to hear the next thing because this was the most shocking thing. As I look back about that whole moment and just this really shaping thing happening, you know, the most interesting and odd thing about all this is I, like this is a church staff, right? Like these are people who love Jesus, who are teaching the Bible. Like, this whole thing is happening here. And when that strength was read and that description was read, I was applauded to that, not called for repentance. Like it was almost like that was a good thing. Like, man, we need some more of that in here. We need some more getting everyone else behind us. And I I just, I bring that up for this reason. I think we are all much more enculturated on this issue than we would dare even know to imagine. That like our reflexive response to being at the top of the ladder is, that's great. When God is saying, that's not my picture of greatness. I have no problem with you wanting to be great, but you're looking for greatness in the wrong place. You're you're exchanging a 20 or 30 year run for greatness. You're exchanging that with an eternity of it. It's not greatness in my kingdom. That's the opposite of greatness. Greatness is had when you're a servant of all and last of all. That's greatness. Okay, let me just take a moment to apply this to the room. I think it would be appropriate just to ask the question, is the disposition of your life, how you look at other people, servant of all, last of all, slave of all, is that the disposition of your life? And here's one of the best ways I know of to help you gauge that and see that. When you're trying to answer the question, am I a servant of all? The best place for you to look is what happens in your heart when you're treated like a servant. When you're stripped of your dignity, someone doesn't give you the respect that you think you deserve. Someone doesn't treat you like you think you should be treated. Someone belittles you. They mock you. They're sarcastic to you. What happens when you're treated like a servant? I think it's the best way for you to see, are you a servant of all? Is what happens in that moment. And you know what happens for a lot of us? The boxing gloves come out in that moment, don't they? That hurts so badly. Why? Because that, that desire for greatness that was meant to be vertical, received from God, has been bent out horizontally. And we're demanding that greatness be, 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 you know, be given, be received from people around us. We're demanding that from them. And, and maybe I could say it this way. I think a lot of us live with an unconscious pursuit of greatness bent horizontally. I think we live with it, but we're just unaware of it. And, and one of the moments that makes us aware that we are living unaware of that pursuit to, to get greatness horizontally is when we don't get it from people, when people don't give it to us, when, when people belittle us, when they mock us, when they lie to us, when they, when they make it really hard to love them. And so ask yourself the question, when you're treated like a servant, do you treat that person in response like you're a servant to them, like you're a slave to them, like you're last behind them? Okay, now I need to take a a quick side, you know, kind of a sidestep here. And I want to talk to parents for a a moment on this. Matthew tells this exact same story. In in his gospel, he tells the exact same story. But there is one change to the story. Now, check out this change. This is so interesting. In Matthew's account of this story, James and John are not the one who come up to Jesus and ask to be at his right and his left. Do you know who comes up and asks? their mom. 
their mom comes up to Jesus, kneels before Jesus and says, hey, you know, my sons, James and John, you know, those guys, will you make sure that when you come in glory, one's at your right and one's at your left parent, we need to talk about this. If you have kids, you are so much more influential than you know. And that should really sober us. And the truth is, as parents, we are all ambitious for our kids. We all want good things for our kids. The question is, what do we want? What are we ambitious about? And parents, I want you to hear this. One of the most important things you can do for your kids is pass along God's view of what greatness is. I, you know, I have no problem if you want your kid to be great in school, you want your, you know, your sons and daughters to be great on an athletic field. I have no problem with you pushing them to be good in those, those areas. But as parents, we cannot confuse these things. As parents, our primary job is not to make sure our kids are looked upon well horizontally. That they have achieved greatness horizontally. The primary thing we are to do as parents is to make sure our kids are great in the eyes of God. That's the number one thing. Maybe you can think of it this way. Parents, your number one job as a parent is to prepare your kid to one day stand before Jesus. And so in light of that, I want to give you a couple of just encouragements in the context of the biblical idea of greatness that I think could be helpful for you. Just three practical encouragements here for parents. Number one, parents, teach your kids God's definition of greatness. Teach them. if, If you don't teach them that, they're not just going to mysteriously learn that. See, if if they're just left to kind of go navigate that on their own, they are going to instantly and natively pick up the culture's definition of greatness, being at the top of the ladder. It's going to take you teaching them that being servant of all and last of all is what God says greatness is. That, That requires moms and dads teaching them that. So can I just encourage you, ask your kids, what do you think greatness is? Who is great to you? And what makes them great? And they're going to tell you something. And you need to see, do they have the world's view of greatness or do they have God's view of greatness? So parents, teach them the Bible's view, God's view of greatness. Help prepare them to be great in the eyes of God. Here's the second thing. Teach your kids to admire greatness. What you look at and applaud and get excited about is what your kids are naturally going to see is important in life. So, so make sure you point out when you see greatness that you show them, that is the biblical greatness that we've been talking about. See, and greatness is in the Bible, primarily seen in the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is in the Bible, but it's also all around this. But I just think we live totally unaware of that. And so let me just give you some examples of that, uh, of biblical greatness that is all around us. Last night at 11 p.m., we had a crew of guys come up here because they had a little shindig in here last night. We had a crew of guys come in here, vacuum, clean all of that mess up that was there just to get it ready to set up this morning. And a lot of nights, that's like until one and two o'clock in the morning. And you know what? There is not a person in the world that stands there as they're working, applauding them. And that's biblical greatness. This morning at 6 a.m., we have a crew of men and women that come and set up the chair you're sitting in. 
Everything you see out and about that kind of allows us to do what we're doing was set up, but was like physically put there by someone. And can I just tell you at 6 a.m., no one is here applauding them. And that is biblical greatness. I think of the family in our church that over the last 10 or so years has fostered over 30 kids, adopted several of them. And can I just tell you that along the way at 2 a.m. in the morning, when a kid's crying and you're changing their diaper, no one's applauding that. And that is what the Bible calls greatness. I mean, that, that's it. That's what the Bible calls greatness. If you're a parent and you've got little kids, um, you know, that are yours, they're probably not with you right now because we've got people who are teaching them and holding them and praying over, over you know, them right now to serve you. And can I just tell you, no one's up there going like this to them. No one is doing that. And that is biblical greatness. And so can I just encourage you when you see that, it's important that you, you grab your kid and you say, that's it. That is what we're talking about. That's a picture of biblical greatness. They may, they may not be great in the eyes of the world, but that right there is great in the eyes of God. And here's the third encouragement. Parents, teach your kids greatness by example. By example, the best way for you to, for you to teach, you know, obviously your kids, anything, anyone else, anything is by example. It's what gives like permanence to the words that you're saying. And so if, if your kids don't see that this is a reality in your heart, it's likely not going to be a reality in their hearts either. So, so dads, let me talk to dads for a second. Can I just implore you to be great in the home? And I think a lot of dads have the wrong view of what greatness is in the home. I think a lot of dads feel this is greatness. If I can make everyone in the home my servant, then I've got it. And that's not biblical greatness. Biblical greatness is when you have taken the bottom step and you're saying this, I am willing to serve everyone in this home. Can I just plead with you to be great in that way? Moms, for you to be great in that way. Your, your kids need to know that when mom and dad see a need in our neighborhood, they meet it. When we see something that needs to be done, my mom and dad, they do it. Servant of all. They are slave of all in that way. But I think there is like a real particular challenge for all of us in the room to, to find ways that we can be last of all and servant of all to, to do those things, to serve in those sort of a way, you know, in those sort of ways. And here's one of the things I love about the local church is it provides opportunity for you with your kids to serve. Dads, I mean, would it not be a wonderful thing if you were on a setup or a teardown team serving with your kid along the way? Getting to point out that this is biblical greatness. It is small in the eyes of the world, but it is big in the eyes of God. I mean, those sort of things are like so important for you along the way as parents to be able to model those sort of things for your kids. Okay, and we'll land the plane here. The last thing Jesus shows us is the way to greatness. He's gonna show us that the way to greatness, he's gonna reveal the way to greatness. And we see it in verse 45. Verse 45 says this, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus not only redefines greatness in this passage, he also shows us a picture, like an example of greatness, right? In the first half of verse 45, he is showing us what greatness is. He did not come to be served, but to serve. That's the example. That's the picture. That's what we're striving for, right? He is showing us that this is what you're going after. This is greatness. I am giving my life away for your sake. 
I'm serving you to the point of it costing me my life. That's the example. But hear me really loudly right, right here. Make sure you pay attention to this. For all of us in the room, we all need more than a, than a re, we need a redefinition of greatness, but we need more than a redefinition of greatness. We all need to see an example of greatness, but we need more than an example of greatness. Listen to this. We all need the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to walk in it. We all need that if we're going to walk in it. And this is what the word ransom is, is pointing to. You see it in verse 45? He gave his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom tells us two things, one about us and one about God. It, first of all, it tells us something about us. It, it speaks of our condition before God. See, like, if you think about the last month of your life, chances are you have not used the word ransom in a normal conversation. We don't really have a way for that to come out very often in our culture. But in first century life for the Jews, they, that, that was a very prevalent word. They used that word a lot. One commentator says this about it. Ransom was a familiar image in the Jewish, Roman, and Greek cultures. And then he, he describes it. It was the price paid Listen to this, to liberate a slave, a prisoner of war, or a condemned person. So do you see what that word ransom is saying about you? You're the condemned person. I'm the condemned person. I'm the slave. You're the slave. It's saying something about us. It's saying that we are all slaves to our sin, slaves to our selfish ambition. And that slavery goes so deep that we can't help ourselves. It is beyond our power to break that the chains of that are so tight and the lock is so firm that we can't just like jiggle our wrist out of that thing, that we actually need help from someone else. See, it's showing us that our problem with sin and selfishness runs that deep. That's our condition. But it also tells us something about God, that in Jesus, God was glad to provide a way out of those chains. That in Jesus, God was glad to pay the price of our ransom. That he was glad to purchase us out of our slavery, to bring us out of our condemnation. It's it's pointing to that. And the truth is, that is what we all need if we're going to live in this this greatness as the Bible would define. If we're actually going to be a servant of all and slave of all, we need the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to do it. We need him being a ransom, not just an example for us, but a substitute for us. Someone that can get on the cross in our place and take all of our condemnation, all of our guilt, all of our sin. We need a savior if we're going to live in this. That's what we need. If we're ever going to be freed from the agenda of making everyone around us a servant, we need Jesus the servant to be a servant in our place. So let's just um, finish by using two examples here. How about our man James and our man John? When we meet them in Mark 10, we see them in this passage. Would we all agree that they are marked by selfish ambition? They have got this thing all messed up in Mark 10, right? But I want you to think about James, not in Mark 10 now, but think about James in Acts chapter 12. If you read forward in Acts, you're going to see that James became one of the pastors of the early church. And in Acts chapter 12, he became one of the first martyrs of the Christian faith. Now, isn't that interesting? He goes from Mark 10, a selfish, sin-soaked, all about him. Give me the seat on the right or the left. That guy to a person willing to give his life for the sake of Jesus. And can we just ask the question, what happened in between Mark 10 and Acts chapter 12? Answer, 
Jesus died as a ransom for his sin. How about our man, John? John in Mark 10 was a really selfish guy. He was all that. But if you um, read forward in the the Bible, here's what you're going to find about John. John ended up writing five books of the New Testament. And in 1 John 3.16, he writes this. By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And now, because of what he has done for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. How do you go from Mark 10, give give me the seat on the right side, to let's lay down our life as a servant of all? How do you get there? Answer, what happened in between those two things? Jesus, his savior, died as a ransom. That's what happened. And the exact same thing that James and John needed to be changed is the exact same thing that you and I need to be changed. We need the death of a savior, a ransom, Jesus. And can I say the great news of the gospel? We have it. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.